Hello, hello. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hold On For Dear Life podcast, the official holder podcast. And today we are one man down, as it's just myself, Drew Beachler, and Skyler on our team here, holding down the fort as our third regular uh, contributor here on the podcast. Joel is out this week, but we've got some travel and a lot of things just going on, but thought we'd still try to hit in a quick episode this week because there's just been a lot of developments, particularly in the NFT space that we just thought we would kind of bring all of you listeners up to speed on and share a couple of thoughts. So with all of that, I will get out of the way our obligatory, maybe legal requirements that this is not financial advice, but just fun advice. Maybe I don't know. We got to yeah, rebrand that some way. This is not financial advice just for fun advice. Actually not advice anyway, just fun tidbits. But yeah, so let's jump right into it. First thing on the docket today, Blur on February 14th. That was the drop of their Blur token. The airdrop released 360 million tokens, which is about 12% of their total supply and was many multiple hundred millions of dollars into the NFT ecosystem. I have some stats here in front of me. Over 115,000 recipients were eligible to claim the Blur token airdrop. And the average airdrop was worth about $3,000. The median was $295 at the current token market price. And today, the token price is sitting right around $0.84. Actually, has stayed. It You saw the pop like you do with most kind of token airdrops right at the drop. And then it stayed really relatively in the kind of 80 cents plus or minus kind of 20% around a dollar, it seems like over the last couple of weeks. But but this has just been a monumental A, liquidity event into the market. You're seeing also, no surpriser, but a lot of these people pouring that money back into Blur, which has also put it into the top spot among marketplaces and has since also sent OpenSea a little bit scrambling, also trying to figure out what is their strategy here. And so three days after the airdrop on February 17th, we saw OpenSea make a really big announcement that for the first time they were dropping their fee to 0% for a limited time and then moving to optional creator royalties. And so a little bit to not gamify the system, they have a 0.5% minimum for all collections that they will take on a royalty if it's not enforced and then continue to keep their same policy around marketplaces with the policies around royalty enforcement won't be blocked by the operator filter. But massive news in the NFT space, I think lots of ramifications around this royalty war, I think where we're heading with royalties, but just wanted to kind of uh, tee this up. And I think there's a lot of different directions that we can and maybe should take this, but maybe Skylar kind of just first, what are your thoughts around the blur airdrop as a whole and everything we've seen over the last two weeks, really? Yeah, it was definitely a smooth airdrop. So I'll give him props for that. I'd say there's so many ways we could take this right now. This is not the first time that a marketplace has tried to take down OpenSea. So I'm thinking immediately looks rare with their guerrilla marketing strategy where they airdropped a bunch of looks tokens to people who were doing trading volume on OpenSea. And I think they came very close and kind of overall volume and market cap to OpenSea, but eventually it dwindled off and they never really overtook OpenSea at any point. They got really close. Blur, I think, has finally cracked the code with the things that they have put in place to do so. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You touched on a couple of those. One, they really don't have any marketplace fees. I think they started at 0.5% although they did make it optional for you to pay creator royalties. So if you didn't want to pay them, you didn't have to, but if you wanted to pay the full royalties, I think it actually set 
when you went to purchase or sell an NFT, it would tell you what it was set to. You can tell I've not used the platform a whole ton and did not get an airdrop from Blur. Um, but I think it did at least tell you and you had the option to do that, but they didn't enforce it. They let you choose. And again, not the first people to do it, but definitely one of the best people to do it. And I think the third thing that this airdrop shows is that this was like the final piece that really made it all come together is they incentivize trading on their platform through loyalty use. Hey, you're using our platform and we know you're using your platform because we can see we're an aggregator for all these different marketplaces where you're listing yourself. If you're listing on Blur, you're going to get more airdrop points. And when we do this eventual token drop ICO, you're going to get more tokens. It's as easy as that. And I think what that brought in was a lot of people who are in it for just simply trading and making money on these NFTs, the liquidity went to Blur. So just to share a couple of stats, which is really fascinating. Over the last 30 days, um, Blur has generated over 1.24 billion in trading volume. OpenSea has traded 436 million over the past 30 days. So getting close to, what is that, $900 million more than OpenSea has. And this has now basically changed the narrative altogether. What used to be the up-and-coming marketplace is now the dominant NFT trading platform. And what Blur, I feel like, they've done is they've almost turned trading NFTs and buying and selling them into your typical Bloomberg terminal. You go to your website and it looks exactly like the Bloomberg terminal. And now instead of highlighting the fact that you're purchasing an NFT or selling an NFT and there's cool metadata associated with it, with its traits, it's maybe 10 by 10 pixels on there. And it shows you all of the relevant data that you would want to know trading wise on there. And it has effectively NFT trading is basically just going to become altcoin trading and blur really turned it into that. But it shows where the market's at. The fact that the trading volume is all on blur. Now, a lot of that is farming for this second airdrop that they're doing, I think over this next month, because I think they want to continue this market domination over OpenSea. And like you mentioned, it's forced OpenSea's hand a little bit to drop their royalties down to 0%. But there's not a lot OpenSea can do at this point because they are more of a regular regulated company than Blur is. And I think they're trying to do things and not saying Blur isn't an ethical way, but they're at least trying to make sure that, hey, we need to make sure that we're compliant with regulation and we're not going to just drop a token to everybody because a lot of the regulation that we're seeing is coming from the United States. With the Blur airdrop specifically, you were not allowed to claim it in the United States. There was a checkbox that said, you are not a U.S. citizen if you are claiming this airdrop. I think a lot of people just ended up using a VPN as they will, but they attempted to make it so that you couldn't claim the airdrop there. So I think there's a lot going on right now with um, creator royalties and what it's going to amount to. But what this has shown us is that all it took was a couple of marketplaces competing for market share to drive creator royalties to zero. I think creator royalties are good. I want the artists especially to be rewarded for the work that they put out. And I think there's a lot of scenarios in which that might happen where an artist releases a really nice piece, but it doesn't do as well in the first couple months to even years. And it takes a long time for that piece to take off. They might never realize the success that comes days, months, or years later if royalties aren't enforced or if they didn't have a mint for this NFT that brought them in a certain amount of money. But I also think that creators should be looking for other avenues 
for ways to keep the project afloat if it's one that's more than just an art drop and it's just an art piece that you'll use. What I mean by that is what happens with buying and selling NFTs in their current form is you are effectively reliant on customer churn and NFT churn in order to generate money. And I know I'm putting that very bluntly, but it is the case that you would want to pump up your project. So you bring new liquidity into the project and that new liquidity being brought into the project might allow people to exit if they're wanting to get out of the project, but then it also funds the project through those royalties. So you're constantly churning your customers, which feels a little bit against the whole goal of building a tight knit rock solid community. It just shows that when you add financial motivation to these JPEGs, the dynamics just get really crazy. And here we are now today, February 27, we're recording this and creator royalties are effectively zero right now. Yeah, I'm looking at a couple of da- Dune dashboards too. Where the past week, actually, royalties on Blur have been 5.7, 5.8 million dollars, and royalties, royalty volume, fees volume on OpenSea has been 4.1 million, which is wild. But actually, over the past week, the highest fee marketplace fees volume has been from Looks Rare, actually, um, because they still have kind of that really high fee. All that to say though, I think, I don't know, this is, it's really interesting. I think it completely changes the dynamic too, where like projects now are going to have to rely on releasing new products to make more money. OpenSeas tried to really support creators, even ever since Blur launched and been very adamant about it. And then really this kind of token airdrop, when you see the writing on the walls, it's hard to not shift strategy or figure out when we're kind of faced with so far, we've not seen even looks rare, any kind of material impact to OpenSea's business. And so now when you see a very material impact after the blur airdrop, it just becomes really hard to, to not take a stand. But point here was that the likely side effects are going to be a teams charge more for their mint. B, we see lots of new on-chain royalty enforcement contracts for new products, experimenting with transitioning over older contracts, et cetera. And then three, a lot more of launching, deliver on the thing you promised and then abandoning your your project and an unfortunate kind of race to zero and race to the bottom. And that's what I think I'm worried about is that we're really just putting a lot more focus on the trader itself, even like blurs tools to your point. And this, I think is also a big difference between looks rare and blur is like looks rare had the strategy maybe right in terms of kind of the vampire attack and how do we just go after even like rewarding people because they, they would do the same thing, rewarding people based on listings. And if you were in the top X amount of collections and things like that, you would get looks for rewards. But I think the major difference is Blur actually like walked the talk in their product development. And it was very clearly focused on the elite day trader of NFTs. It is the Bloomberg terminal for NFTs for sure. And so it just because of the fees war, they captured a very large volume or the whales that were transacting in very large volumes. Like even if you look at the stats on the number of whatever percentage of blur volume was really held by only a very tiny percentage of wallet addresses. Um, you know, all of that's really interesting, but I think it really hits the creator a little bit in that how are we going to help them build sustainable businesses here where now launching an NFT project doesn't seem that much more appealing potentially than launching it not on the blockchain. 
So anyway, I think there's a lot to be said here. I don't think we've seen the end of of royalties. Obviously, again, there's lots you can do with on-chain enforcement and all that kind of stuff. And OpenSea's tried to make that very easy for a lot of people with their operator contract and being able to write that into your contract. I think that's really going to probably end up being the answer is people are just going to be coding this into their contract. If you want royalties, just enforce it on the chain. Otherwise, people are just going to find a way around it. At the end of the day, traders are good for the market. They're good for NFT projects. They bring in new liquidity that might not have been there and they keep things fresh from a perspective of, oh, new big sale or lots of trading volume going on with a project. It's almost like an indicator you can use of if a project is worth buying into or not, which again, makes it seem like it's a casino of sorts. And in some ways it is right now, but yeah, we definitely haven't seen the end of this. A lot of this is probably just going to be solved by robust on-chain enforcement. Otherwise, I think creators and project owners are going to have to get creative with the ways that they're launching NFTs and the reason that they're launching an NFT. You have to really think deeply, what is the reason that you think launching an NFT project is the answer? And then how are you going to keep your business afloat? Because at the end of the day, I think you should be thinking about it from a business perspective. If I'm launching an NFT project, What's the business model? I'm launching this so that I can give you token gated access to my exclusive kind of IRL merch that I don't know, LA based, right? Style merch. There's so many different ways you can go about it. And if that's your reasoning, then that's great. Royalties might not be very necessary for you because the business model is selling t-shirts, right? It's not selling NFTs. That's just a vehicle that you used for it using this new technology. So remains to be seen where things will go, but I'm convinced it'll be on chain royalties. Yeah. And if anything, it's brought um, the pump and liquidity, but like we're seeing market volumes over the past week that we haven't seen since May of last year, which is really wild. To keep us moving here, moving on to our second topic, something we did, we haven't actually gotten a chance to discuss yet, but I found this really interesting. So I wanted to discuss really quickly during the Super Bowl. So this was a couple of weeks ago. We did see one very major NFT ad, which was Digidaiku. And so Digidaiku is an NFT powered game run by Limit Break and their CEO, Gabriel Layden, is very prominent in the space. And the startup Limit Break at the Super Bowl had a very short Super Bowl ad with a QR code where you could go and claim a Digidaiku free NFT that I don't know what the floor price is now, but we're selling for the hundreds. So essentially just gave away free money to a lot of people. Yet I think there was only like 10,000, maybe five to 10,000 of these that were really available and they were minted. They tweeted it out before the actual Super Bowl ad even went out. So really just ended up being a lot of people already in their ecosystem minting these. And then after the mint out, they actually redirected to Gabriel Layden's old Twitter account, who's the CEO of Limit Break, the company behind Digidaiku. And so just wanted to bring this up as one of the big kind of brand activations we've seen for NFTs in quite some time. I'm a little bit perplexed maybe by it, but in kind of the strategy and like whether it helps the ecosystem as a whole at all, or whether this just pumped the Digidaiku holders bags, TBD. I don't know. I have kind of feelings on that, but I do think it's something worth talking about because it was a multi-million dollar investment into a Super Bowl ad campaign just for a free NFT claim for a few thousand people. Yeah, it was definitely an effective ad from the perspective that we're still talking about it today, weeks later, and there was a lot of noise around it afterwards. But again, I'm not sure how much of that noise was coming from the existing community and just being shocked and surprised that this was the approach that they took and the amount of money that they spent. 
So just a little context as well is startup raised about $200 million. So I'm not going to say six and a half million is a drop in the bucket, but they definitely had the funding to do it. I get why you would maybe think about dropping a Super Bowl ad. That's pretty hype. Coinbase did it last year with their QR code and everybody loved it because like the old DVD player where it bounces around, I think it actually hit the corner and that was like amazing. So that was a really well done ad, I would say. And I don't know if I can say the same about the limit break one. The ad itself was fine, but again, being directed to the guy's Twitter profile, if I'm someone who's not familiar with Web3 at all or NFTs, and I really feel like that's a very large majority of the population, I would be very confused on what I am supposed to do and how I'm supposed to go from that. Like, how does that onboard me to to NFTs? I don't know. Oh yeah. And even his, the first thing on his Twitter profile, no offense and that you see this all over the space, but it's all retweet and like to sign up to get a free XYZ. It's just so like full of the same kind of scammy, spammy stuff that we see all in the NFT ecosystem. And it's just, that was an incredibly terrible way to onboard anyone into Web3 and NFTs in my personal opinion. And so I just feel like, I don't know, there could have been a million other better ways. Like if the goal was actually to increase awareness and to onboard people into web three and showcase why NFTs and this technology is really unique. Um, I just feel like there were many better ways to do that. And this just felt like a little bit of a flex for the Digidaiku community to say, Hey, we have $6 million to light on fire in the driveway and let everybody watch it together, which is great for brain awareness for them, but it wasn't even like promoting a game or anything that like a consumer could really, you know, engage with. It was like a max of a few thousand people really that they could have potentially onboarded, or at least the Coinbase ad two years ago um, or last year, anybody who scanned that would have been, was on the list to claim free Bitcoin or whatever it kind of it was or create your first kind of wallet. And it just seemed like you could have gone through that a different experience. Even if it was like a POAP free drop or create a free wallet with your email through Magic Link and you could claim some kind of you know, free thing. Like in my opinion, Reddit, who didn't spend anything, they didn't spend a dime on the Super Bowl with their Super Bowl avatars. I think something like 1.8 million people or something like that claimed one of the Super Bowl avatars. Reddit did more to onboard people during the Super Bowl than Digidaiku did in many ways. Yeah, hundred percent they did. And Hey, more power to the community themselves. You want to spend money, you're going to spend it on your own community. What I will say, though, is I am a little bit perplexed too. did a little bit of research before this. And I think Drew and I are you're, we're both generally familiar with this project. But really, what exactly this NFT project is going to ultimately be? I, I still think a lot of that is TBD and under wraps and still being built. Um, so they're building the plane as they fly. And it was definitely a marketing strategy to bring people in. So if that's the goal, then, yeah, I think just linking to the Twitter profile was probably not the way to do it. Like you said, POAP probably would have been a great way to do that. And for those at home listening who aren't familiar, POAP is proof of attendance protocol. Think of them as a little digital stamp you can get for showing up to a place. I want to say the MoMA in New York City is a place that if you go in, there's a QR code that they have that you can scan. It might actually be its own NFT, but it might also be a POAP. But it's effectively, hey, I showed up here and this is my digital stamp to prove that I have. And there's a ton of use cases for things like those. And even that, right, is a cheap, free way to bring people into the ecosystem and say, hey, we're building a really dope mobile game. It's going to be Web3 powered. And you might not even know that it is, but it is. And I think that's really going to be the whole goal with Web3 games to begin with is that they empower this new type of technology and way to play games and way to use the items that you earn in game. 
you're not going to necessarily want to know that it's built on Web3. Maybe the nerds like us will, but for the most part, people aren't really going to care that it is or isn't. Things like POAPs are great for that. And hindsight's always 2020. Again, respect the fact that they put the money in and we're talking about it today in this podcast. It did a little good, at least from that perspective, giving us some content. Yeah, that is very true. And then maybe this, we're going to sign off here. So this isn't too long of an episode, but just maybe one, a couple of last things that we are just keeping an eye on in the news kind of perspective. One is Dapper Labs is actually current in a lawsuit. And I think everyone has used a handful of kind of headlines out there saying, oh, the courts are saying in this lawsuit with Dapper Labs that NFTs are securities, which is not true. The only thing the courts are saying is Dapper had filed a motion to throw out the case and the courts are just giving it permission to to move forward. So they're saying that the plaintiff did make enough of a case of this and you basically they won't just throw it out. But I think also one of the big things to, to see here is basically they're going through the Howie test with NBA Top Shot moments and saying, were these a security and should they have been regulated and registered as securities, which Dapper Labs did not register NBA Top Shot moments as securities. And I think this is just something that we're all keeping an eye on. We look at what is really an NFT and what is a security. I think the interesting thing with this kind of particular opinion is that they are making the assertion that because NBA Top Shot is run on the Flow blockchain, which they're saying kind of Dapper runs, though Dapper is, is also they're saying that we've effectively decentralized over recent time period. But because they've run it, that is what kind of makes this characterization that it's its own kind of private blockchain that what would make this kind of a security. So we'll, we will see where this goes and could be keeping an eye on it. But I think it's just something that kind of at least the NFT plus finance plus kind of legal nerds in the space. It's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And I'll just quote actually what the Dapper Labs lawyers are saying. Uh, baseball cards are not securities. Pokemon cards are not securities. Baseball cards are not securities. And common sense say so. The law says so. And the court says so. And that is like basically what they are defending here is that, hey, these are just effectively the digital version with provable provenance on a blockchain of these Pokemon, these basketball cards, and they are not securities. I think the whole argument, like you mentioned a little bit, is the fact that it's on a private blockchain. It's not exactly public. So by purchasing one of these, I guess you're really invested in Dapper Labs being successful because if Dapper Labs goes under, your NFT goes away, all the people hosting the flow blockchain go away, and what you originally purchased effectively goes to zero. Really, even no, I'm not even familiar with a blockchain just turning itself off other than Solana for their regularly scheduled maintenance. So I really don't know. And I guess it would just become inaccessible at that point. And I think that's the whole argument is that you really you own it. You do from an NFT perspective, but it's not decentralized in nature like Ethereum or Bitcoin are where these hardened computer systems run on nodes all over the world. If I stop running my Bitcoin node, the Bitcoin chain isn't going to stop running. But if Dapper Labs decides to turn the flow blockchain off because you know, that have money to turn, keep the lights on, then your baseball cards go away or basketball cards, one of the two. So I think that's the whole argument right now. And it's definitely one to watch. I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah, I think it will be really interesting. And I think it's just goes back to the Howie test a lot. And is this an investment contract between me buying the moment and in Dapper Labs? And does, are my profits derived from the efforts of 
Dapper Labs and being a business or not. And then also is Dapper Labs enough of a common enterprise? This is a Dapper Labs controlled market. I think their intention is for it to not be. Obviously, that's what they're trying to do with Flow Blockchain. I think we're seeing more and more decentralization there where like you, it's much easier to make the argument with Ethereum or Solana that um, the Ethereum foundation is not doing anything that is making any kind of price of an NFT or a board API club go up. Um, and I am not depositing my money into Ethereum and they're holding it as a bank, a centralized organization, but, but just another one to we look at, we've been seeing a lot of just sec from staking and Kraken agreeing to a penalty and shut down their staking as a service Coinbase saying, Hey, we're going to, we're sticking up for staking and think that it's not security. It's just an interesting over the last really just couple of weeks to see all of the, from the regulation side, just a lot of kind of enforcement. And it feels, I feel like we still, we need more actual regulations than just strong handed enforcement. And so I'm hoping that we can move more toward that here this year. Just we have more clarity really is like the biggest need. And I just want to jump in here and riff a little bit on something. We're talking about regulation legal right now. Let's talk about Coinbase real quick and the launch of their layer two blockchain called Base. This is a really big deal, especially from a legal and compliance perspective. Coinbase somehow managed to get this through their own legal and compliance team in the U.S., which is incredibly bullish considering this current regime right now is pretty oppressive against crypto, I'd say. And we have these lawsuits like, is Dapper Labs selling unregistered securities? And there's a lot of uncertainty going on. And there's, does Binance have the actual funds that they say they do to pay out users as a non-U.S. exchange? Coinbase, I feel like for the most part, and Brian Armstrong has really tried to do everything by the book. And now with this launch of their new blockchain base, it's incredibly bullish from the ecosystem. So first and foremost, it's a layer two built on Ethereum. They could have chose to build on their own blockchain, like Flow blockchain. They did not. They chose to build on Ethereum. And the fact that they chose to build on Ethereum, for me, is a massive vote of confidence for the ecosystem as a whole. And it's great for decentralization that they're leaning into the ethos as well. It's one of the core pillars of Web3. And I think that's going to end up setting a precedent. A lot of people and a lot of companies, fintech especially, I'd say, are going to look to Coinbase and say, hey, what is the right way to do this? And if Coinbase is jumping in with their own blockchain built on Ethereum, these other companies that they're most definitely consulting with, they're probably going to recommend they build on their own chain or pull out of the same playbook that they are on, build on Ethereum. And again, Ethereum being this open source, open source technology, it's just overall bullish for the industry. So again, the fact that they got this through their legal and compliance team is just so awesome. And hopefully the SEC or no federal organization comes after them for launching this chain. I don't know. I feel like I want to say I doubt they will, but <laughs> this feels like the sky's the limit for Gary. So uh, yeah, but I think too, it is, and they talk about this on the website too, but this is like their commitment to on-chain. And we believe that the on-chain platform is the most important developer platform since the internet. And so I think it is really interesting that they're leaning in and they even talk about bases built to be the on-chain home for Coinbase's products, users, and assets and an open ecosystem. And so I think it's, it is definitely a testament to their kind of commitment to decentralization and I think they've just found a really strong place in the market. The other thing too, like me personally, my background, Salesforce and we have, and the app exchange has been like such a 
massive point for them and letting other people build on top of Salesforce. And we had the same thing at Exact Target with our own app marketplace and developer platform. It's just cool to see this is like the same exact parallel of the app ecosystem and developer marketplace, but in kind of the crypto world. And so I think this is really interesting if you make the parallel to Salesforce and App Exchange and Coinbase and Base. It's really interesting. And I think is a really unique playbook for people to look at in terms of like, how could we maybe decentralize our app ecosystem and developer marketplace is really cool. So I'm excited to see where base ends up. I did mint one of their kind of commemorative NFTs and I don't know how many there are. They're at over 200,000. I think they actually extended the mint. Oh, they did extend the mint. Because the goal is for everybody to own a base NFT or at least have the most opportunity to. They're probably well over 200,000 because I read that this morning. Yeah. I'm looking right now. There are 373,000 NFTs. That's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. This goes into something that you and I have talked about and been reading articles on even this well-written piece that we've been sharing around in the office around the power of defaults. Ethereum is truly the default go-to smart contract ecosystem and Coinbase recognizes that and they want in on that action base as a chain. They want that to be the default remains to be seen for what, but if you go to their website base.org, you'll see a couple of um, animations for build NFTs, build gaming, build decentralized exchanges, build bridges. They want to be the default. They want a piece of that pie. But again, they're building on the Ethereum ecosystem. And I think this is a testament to this technology that's now eight years old is not going away. And it's a vote of confidence for the ecosystem as a whole. And it's a massive win for Coinbase. It's a massive win for everyone in Web3. Completely agree. All right. And with that, we are signing off for the Hold On For Dear Life podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. If you want to learn more about Holder, you can go to holder.xyz or follow us on Twitter at holderxyz. Or you can follow me on Twitter personally at Drew Beachler. And you can also follow Skyler on Twitter. Yeah, mine's a little weird. It's at Baker to Saul. I might change that, but uh, yeah, for now it's that. At Baker to Saul, S-O-L. And with that, we are signing off. We will catch you on the next podcast.